Welcome to Post Doom, regenerative conversations exploring overshoot grief, grounding, and gratitude. I'm your host, Michael Dowd. And in this conversation recorded back in July of 2019, I speak with author uh, and uh, retired professor of journalism from the University of Texas, Austin, Robert Jensen. Robert, I consider to be a very important prophetic voice. Three of his books, he's written more. We Are All Apocalyptic Now, Plain Radical, and The End of Patriarchy. Enjoy. So uh, first off, just sort of what does the meme or the name post-doom mean to you? Like when you heard that, what, what comes to mind? And is there language that you prefer when describing sort of your own experience of normalizing expectations? So I have never used the term doom or, or terms like it um, to describe my view of the world, where the world is heading, any of that. To me, it's just reality. So I'm a big believer in facing reality. Um, I think the term doom has been associated, especially with the, the variation doomers, with people who face that reality, but then become cynical, jaded, um, you know, misanthropic, any number of things. And that doesn't describe me. So the term doom I've stayed away from, uh, but, but primarily because it doesn't, it doesn't describe what I feel. My experience emotionally of facing that reality is not gloom. Um, I have a friend whose kid used to call me Mr. Doom, and I always would argue it was an inappropriate term. Uh, I think that just as every individual human has to face its own mortality, uh, collectively, we should recognize that societies do not endure forever. And that at this point, we're not just talking about the fall of a particular society. We're not just talking about the end of the Roman Empire or some similar historical uh, occurrence. We're talking about the end of a way of life, the end of a particular period of the human experiment. And that is overwhelming. Um, no one person can really get a, his or her head around it. And in fact, collectively, we can't get our heads around it because it's unprecedented in human history. And so uh, I try to think and feel my way through this with people who aren't afraid of that reality and recognize that we're kind of making it up as we go along. And that in the end, uh, we're all confused. I just got off the phone with a friend who came to that point, he said, I always end up where at the same place in this conversation, which is, I don't know and I'm confused. And he was suggesting that's a healthy place to end up. So yeah, uh, that's where I am these days uh, and where I've been really for the last 10, 20, maybe even 25 years on this. Uh, and in a lot of ways, I feel like I'm slow to pick it up. Uh, but of course, most of the culture won't even acknowledge the question. With just the way you articulated why doom as um as a meme as a word as a language doesn't work for you and part of what i'm trying to get at with post doom that just the concept is to invite people beyond the the, the binary of either it's all okay there's not really any problem that you know humans are in, in you know ingenious we'll solve it they'll fix us think of something or whatever or yeah. if they let go of that doom and gloom so yeah. no let's look post doom let's look beyond just the 
you know, the material fact of contraction and the collapse of an unsustainable civilization that's an inevitable process. And I would argue the inevitable extinction of Homo Colossus, but that may or may not mean the extinction of Homo sapiens, only time will tell. Yeah. Well, I think part of the reason I approach this the way I do really comes down to one person. Um, often when we reflect on our lives, we recognize the importance of having met one person or you know, having had one experience. In my case, it was a man named Jim Copland, who uh, was a friend of mine for you know, nearly 25 years till his death in 2012. Uh, Jim was a central Minnesota farm boy, uh, grew up during the depression, uh, had gone through not only uh, a period of an intellectual change through schooling and a PhD, but also political change through the radical movements of the 60s and 70s. And by the time I met him in the late 1980s, he had a fully ecological and fully radical worldview, which I was able to benefit from. Um, and earlier than anyone I knew personally, Jim understood that the trajectory the human species was on was only going to end one way. And yet that didn't make him a doomer. Yes. Uh, when I met Jim, he had retired early and he was a full-time volunteer in a variety of community and political endeavors. He was, as I said, uh, he had the, the rhythms of a farm boy, uh, up early, tending his garden, uh, attending to people in his community and paying attention to global political issues. So Jim had an analysis that was as, in some sense, as harsh and realistic as I've heard but it didn't stop him from getting up in the morning and being a decent human being. And so I had a model for how that's, you could look at the world honestly and still function. That's awesome. Yeah, and, and Jim's influence on me was widespread throughout many, many different parts of life. When he died, I actually wrote a book about him called Plain Radical um, because his influence was so dramatic. Uh, but I think you know that put me on a, a certain kind of course that allowed me to cope with this. Yes. This will sound odd, but I think the other thing that makes it relatively easy for me to deal with the ecological crises and not collapse into either paralysis or, or cynicism is that my first intellectual and political work after I went back to graduate school at the age of 30 was in the feminist critique of pornography. Now, what does that got to do with ecological crises? Uh -huh. Well, uh, like most people, you know, born into the contemporary United States, especially most men, I did not grow up with a thorough critique of patriarchy, of men's dominance. Right. I didn't pick it up until later. Uh, and I did it through, just by the, you know, happenstance of my career, uh, an analysis of first the legal and then the more general question of the flood of pornography that was you know readily evident in the 1980s and of course has continued uh, specifically the what what i always call the domination subordination dynamic in pornography the way that mm -hmm. men's sexual pleasure in pornography is tied to dominating controlling women often through aggression against women and that opened up for me this question of the patriarchal nature of society which i had been completely oblivious of right and it it taught me that there are structures woven deeply into the fabric of everyday life that we can 
not be aware of. In, yes. in this case, the way I was raised to think of myself as a man. Uh, and once I started unpacking that, the idea that we live with systems and structures of power that are tied to this domination subordination dynamic, but we can't see it always, was easier to understand when I then looked at other issues. You know, for me, it was moving from gender through race and white supremacy, through the nature of capitalism, through US imperialism. I just kind of made my way systematically through all of these kinds of uh, questions. And then, of course, eventually had to come to the, the big question, which is what is the relationship of the human species to the rest of the living world? And mm -hmm. once again, you see it's a domination subordination dynamic that human beings have yes. to run the world. Now, the, the, the other important part of this for me was the work of Wes Jackson from the Land Institute, who charts the beginning of that domination subordination dynamic with the beginning of agriculture. Mm -hmm. Agriculture is only 10 to 20, 10 to 12,000 years old. The human species is, depending on how you chart it, 200,000, 300,000 years old, but of course, a far greater um, evolutionary history as, as the genus Homo. So what one learns is that this domination subordination dynamic is deeply embedded into every aspect of modern human life. But it's a fairly recent blip in the human experience. Yes. And to me, that's the, the source of both comfort and, and concern. Uh, how easy it is for us to ignore that, how much we've all become accustomed to domination and subordination being just natural is a concern. But remembering that our evolutionary history is not tied only to that relationship to the world is a source of some comfort. Uh, yes. So by the time I was, let's say, 40 years old, and as we speak here, I'm 61, I had a framework for understanding both the social and the ecological realities. Uh, I had a, a role model for facing it honestly, yet continuing to strive to be a decent human being in the world. And I was lucky to have the luxury, because by that time I was a university professor, the luxury of resources, that means a salary and a great library, yep. and a fair amount of control over my own time to try to work on this. And that's been the story of you know, basically the last two decades of my life. What you're pointing to, I also speak sometimes and think a lot about how you know, people sometimes say, well, we've always been this way. No. Uh, you know, for the vast majority, probably 97 to 99% of human history, we live more or less sustainably. That is, we live without fouling our nest, largely because we were life-centric, ecocentric. You know, that, that what we today call in a secular name, the biosphere, the ecosphere was, was related to as a greater thou, not a lesser it. And that with that lesser it, then the domination thing just flows right in there and we start treating, yeah. you know. And, and you can point quite clearly, at least I think we can point clearly, to the culprit in all this, and the culprit is carbon. <laughs> and by that, I don't mean to be glib, but, you know, again, we are organic creatures. We have a nature. There is something called human nature. Now, I don't think human nature is what, you know, corporate America tells us it is. Right. That human nature is nothing but a kind of greedy, self-interested uh, march to the shopping mall. Human nature is much more complex than that. But it is true that 
human nature is also, in that sense, carbon nature. We are carbon-based life forms. And as Wes Jackson has long said, you know, one definition of life is the scramble for energy-rich carbon. And wow, yeah. when we started uh, agriculture, this experiment in, in dominating other species like that, what we did was produce the first um, really surplus of highly dense energy in that carbon in surplus grains. And that affected not only our relationship to the larger living world, it affected our relationship to each other because all of a sudden you've got a surplus of energy that it's worth fighting to control. Correct. Hard to see the emergence of social hierarchies. All right, so our carbon nature is kind of at the core of this. It, unlike any other organism, we have got extraordinarily good at extracting that carbon not only from you know the everyday world but now geologically going down and that what what i call the temptations of dense energy um, are really at the core of this and i think we need to recognize that dense energy does things we like yes. uh, you know it does work for us if you think about what petroleum does it does work yeah we put it in machines and the machines do what we no longer have to do so it's not just that capitalism has, you know, through marketing and advertising, trained us to want things we don't really need. That's true enough. But it's also true that that carbon does a lot of work for us. And the temptations of dense energy are important to, to face. And I think, again, that can be distressing. You can say, well, how are we ever going to overcome our carbon nature? Well, the answer is we're not. But we also know more about it than we did 10,000 years ago. When people started agriculture, when people started domesticating plants and animals, they had no way to know the consequences of the human um, uh, search for that dense energy. Well, now we do know more. And so we can make choices that are available to us today that weren't available to us in the past. Yes, conceptually, uh, theoretically, we can make those choices, but um, it seems that that things may be out of our control. And and yeah, you know, <laughs> I, I want to. I, I mean, what you're sharing is absolutely fascinating. I mean, I this it, it makes me want to go back and read, you know, everything you've written on this topic, because the way that you're articulating is so fresh and so obvious and so like, damn, that's a really excellent way to think about it. And I, even though I've, I've, you know, communicated with Wes and um, read his stuff, that piece of it, the way you just articulated it, didn't dawn on me the way that it is now. I still want to bring this a little round, a little more to the personal, like how, how have you named, uh, how do you now think about your sense of a deteriorating future and sort of a little more about your journey, your, your, your story of how, where along the line did you wake up to our global predicament? And then whether it was gradual or in sudden steps, in addition to the mentoring that you said that you already had had, that you actually wrote a book about, um, um, say a little bit about sort of your emotional processing of this over time. And, and to pick up, at, at where we left off, I, I said we have choices, and I agree with you. It's highly unlikely that collectively the human species is going to make the choices necessary to create a sustainable world for ourselves. So it, there, there is, again, kind of comfort and challenge that yeah. we, we can do this. It's also true that the forces set in motion through various systems and structures of power are going to impede those choices. Okay, so how do you deal with that? Well, um, 
I remember the first time that I thought about talking about this in public. At the time I was involved in the anti-war movement, I was doing a lot of public speaking about um, in the post 9-11 era, the disastrous US attempts to dominate the world through military force. And increasingly I felt like if I didn't talk about the ecological crises, I wasn't being honest with an audience. And I remember the first time I thought, okay, I'm gonna say this, it's an anti-war audience. There's no expectation they share my ecological vision. Uh, but I talked a bit about, um, you know, the collapse scenarios and mm -hmm. the realities. And I expected people to, you know, be annoyed or get up and walk out. And when I looked out, instead, of, uh, instead what I saw was a lot of people nodding along and that grief that you talked about already um, coming out, that people yeah. were hungry for a place where they could acknowledge in public what they feel often privately and are even afraid to talk to, to their best friends. Yes. And, and so that was maybe 15 years ago. And ever since then, I have been emboldened to talk more and more about this. Um, for me, that's one way of dealing with my own sense of grief. Yes. To share it. Um, it doesn't mean that, you know, all of a sudden I'm a happy camper. Um, to borrow a phrase from my friend Jim Coplin, you know, I wake up every morning in a state of profound grief. Jim said that very often. And it, by that, he didn't mean he was depressed. Right. He meant he woke up every morning and understood the reality of the world in which he lived. And I think that's in a, in a kind of counterintuitive way, the first step toward mental health. Uh, yes. I don't think one can be truly joyful and fulfilled in the world unless one can deal with that. Now, here's another moment along the way. About 10 years ago, uh, I put out a call for people to simply write about their own experiences with grief. This might have even been 10, 12, even more. And I got back a flood of emails of people expressing this. Sometimes it was raw and experiential. Um, you know, somebody saying, uh, I can no longer garden the way I used to garden where I live because the disruption in climate means nothing is predictable anymore. Uh, people talking a lot about their children, their grandchildren, their sense of despair over what they will inherit. Uh, and that again told me that this is, uh, it's more prevalent than we know. And there's a lot of people who either repress it or don't have a place to express it. And that part of the political work is creating those spaces, uh, which you know, is what you're trying to do here. And I think it's an important part of it. I still have avoided though, the question is how do I deal with it personally? And like most people, I don't deal with it every day. If you woke up sure. every morning and did nothing but think about this, I think it would be hard. Um, but to the degree I do think about it every day, um, I think part of it, and this will sound like I'm being glib, but I'm not, part of what makes it a little easier for me than many people I talk to is uh, I grew up in a very um, traumatic, dysfunctional, um, scary kind of world as a child uh, due to the particulars of my own family background. Uh, now, I wouldn't wish that kind of upbringing on my worst enemy, but I've been able to reflect on the fact that um, it did kind of condition me to deal with the worst the world had to offer. Mm. Uh, 
and of course I wasn't aware of this when I was young, but it did sort of shape me in a way that I found that once I got a bit older, if I was going to survive, I had to tell the truth. Uh, that if I stayed locked in the, the illusions, the delusions that I was raised with, uh, that was a dead end. And I could see where that dead end took me. Mm-hmm. And so I had to, again, I'm, I'm not claiming to have been smart enough to figure this out consciously. But unconsciously, I think I came to understand I had to learn to tell the truth about my life or uh, I would not have a life worth living. And that involved a whole lot of, you know, really difficult um, reality checks. And as I said, I've been lucky to have met people along the way who have not told me I was crazy, but in fact uh, supported and encouraged that kind of um, a kind of evaluation of the world. And I think that's what we need to do for each other. Uh, and that's how I get through the day. I'm curious, uh, Connie specifically was wanting me to invite my guests to share. Uh, what's your own, like, is there language that, um, that sort of most accurately portrays your sense of things and where they're going? Uh, um, you know, yeah. you know I've, I've spoken of the, you know, extinction of Como Colossus, some people, speak of the sixth great extinction or the mm-hmm. catabolic collapse, John Michael Greer, or civilizational reboot. Like how do you, how do you languish this? What's your sense of things now? Uh, and, and say, you know, the next, you know, hundred years, 200 years. Yeah. Well, the, the world in which all of these structures, these systems of power emerged, that world doesn't exist anymore. We are now, you know, on a different planet in, in one of his previous books, Bill McKibben said, we have to rename the planet earth. And yes. with two A's in it. Um, We don't live on the planet that we evolved on. Uh, And the consequences of that, I think, are readily evident to anyone who wants to pay attention to data and personal experience. We're going to look at mass migrations of people. We're going to look at some point uh, at a pretty significant human die-off, I think. Uh, And we're going to no longer have access to all of that cheap, dense energy to do all that work for us. Now, under the best conditions um, that were shaped by rational planning, that is, if all of a sudden the political (laughs) and social institutions of the world said, okay, this is reality, let's start planning for it. Under the best conditions, that transition to a different kind of human presence on the planet would be overwhelming. I mean, we we have no experience at that level. Of course, we're not living under the best of conditions. So one can reasonably expect that we don't really have a way to describe what's coming, except in perhaps science fiction terms. But when we look at what migration means today, let's just say as a result of the turmoil in the Middle East, we can see the social dislocation that's coming. We can see the suffering that's coming. We can see the consequences of all this if we're willing to look at it. And I don't really have a term for that. Yeah. What I think about is if, in fact, the systems and structures of power we live in are not capable of dealing with it, um, like it or not, that's a reality to face. But it's not the end of the story. And here, I I like to borrow a concept, mainly from the Hebrew Bible, of a saving remnant, that even when all is lost, in some sense, there will be an ongoing human presence on this planet into the future. you know, I don't think we're going extinct as a species. There will be people around. 
And the question is, if we can't, in some sense, save, and I typically don't use terms like saving, but if the system in which we live is now moving into its final phase, there will be some human presence on the planet, and what will that presence look like? That's what we might call a saving remnant. Now, if you remember from the Hebrew Bible, the saving remnant was a concept for those people who kept the covenant with God after Israel had been lost. And it's a recurring theme in, in the Bible that people are people. They make a covenant with God. And here we're using God metaphorically in my case. The covenant is broken because humans fail. And every time the covenant is broken, there is a small group of people, a saving remnant that holds on to the best part of ourselves. And I think that's one way to think about political and social activity even if one thinks that the existing systems are, you know, irretrievably lost, which I think they are. Okay, well, that doesn't mean there's nothing worth doing. It doesn't mean, well, let's, you know, open a bottle of vodka and, and fire up Netflix and dull our sensibilities into the future. It means what will it look like on the other side of all that dense energy? You know, if you think about it as, uh, you know, the other side of the hill, uh, there's a valley there. We don't know what it looks like. We don't know how we're going to live in it, but we can start to do certain things to make that possible. And, and um, I, I have a list of three that even if you think, you know, the human species is, is sort of irretrievably lost in some sense, uh, skills, spaces, and stories. So in that human future that we can't fully articulate, we will need skills for living in a low energy world. That means how to grow food, how to preserve food, how to patch up the industrial infrastructure that still exists and try and make a go of what we can. Those skills matter and we can start trying to acquire those skills now and lots of people are in fact doing that. A lot of young people who are moving back to rural areas to try and farm are a good Correct. example. Uh, spaces, we need to create spaces where like-minded people can work this out because the internet for all its connective power is not a real space for people to look each other in the eye and grieve together and make a commitment to each other. So creating spaces that become a, you know, in, in political science, they call it prefigurative politics, you know, trying to come together and work out today what might be useful tomorrow. Yeah. And then stories, we have to tell different stories. And, and this is where religion, I think, like it or not, is important. Um, I obviously don't have a theistic concept of Christianity, the faith in which I was born into. But I know that those Christian stories, as well as the stories from the Hebrew Bible or the stories from Islam or the stories from Buddhism or the stories from any other tradition, they're in some sense the repository of some of the wisdom of human experience. They're also crazy in some places. There's internal contradictions <laughs> in every tradition. But trying to figure out which of those stories are still useful and which we have to let go of and where we have to tell new stories. Um, you know, I, I think it'd be great if we could just make up a new story for humans, but stories have roots and they go deep into us. And so I'm a big believer in, in saving those stories that are uh, worthwhile, working yeah. with them, not being afraid to tell new stories where necessary. Uh, but skills, spaces, and stories, even if you have, you know, no hope in the human future, 
that's something we can commit to. And that's the way I talk about my own political work increasingly is I want to be part of um, helping make a saving, helping to make a saving remnant possible. Yeah, well, I love it. And I, I mean, I agree with everything you just said. And the piece that I'm particularly personally aligned with is that much of my own life right now and my mimetic work, my preaching and, and uh, this sort of thing is taking the, the history of the universe, big history or green history or the universe story or the epic of evolution, whatever you want to call it. But basically the science-based history of everyone and everything and then interpreting that and communicating that using freely mythic language out of my own tradition, the Christian tradition, and reframing what this mythic language means because I think there are aspects of all of these mythic stories that, that have profound uh, or can potentially have profound impact in terms of how we move forward. And I'm wondering how has the, you know, I mentioned in the email that I sent, I had this quote from Joanna Macy, has the big picture, has sort of this universe story been uh, helpful or important to you in any way? Or, or have you come into this ecological uh, understanding, you know, via another route? Um. I am kind of an odd person, I think, in that I believe in the power of story and myth for everybody but me. Uh, <laughs> and, and I'm being self-deprecating there because, of course, no human being lives without story. Uh, you know, we're a narratively driven species. Uh, you know, and I think the power of stories is very important. Um, one of my favorite quotes that I use is from the late poet Muriel Rukeyser, who said, the world is made of stories, not atoms. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, she wasn't claiming we're a, a purely spiritual species that live on some other plane. Uh, she was just acknowledging the, the power of stories. Uh, another author points out that we are so obsessed with stories that we tell ourselves stories when we sleep, <laughs> which yeah. was an interesting way of thinking about dreams. We can't shut off our storytelling, basically. And I think that's one of the things that's distinctive about humans, and there is no human future without taking that seriously. And um, my own experience with Christianity, which I also wrote a book about, um, is quite interesting because uh, I, I never had a real typical traditional theistic interpretation of Christianity. And so as a young man, I, I kind of fled the tradition. I couldn't see any value in it. It seemed like a place for you know, regression, not progress. But later in life, I, you know, I started to realize the power of that. And, and let me give you an example. And this also comes from Wes Jackson. The first time I thought about the story of Adam and Eve in the garden in this way came from a lecture Wes gave. Um, and for Wes, the story of the human expulsion from the garden is the story of agriculture. Yeah, yeah. That the tree of life, God says to Adam and Eve, eat freely from the tree of life, but don't touch the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And of course, we know how it turns out. Um, you know, Adam and Eve can't resist knowledge, and we thought of ourselves as gods, and that was the beginning of the end. And that really does track with agriculture. When human beings domesticated plants and animals, what we really were saying is we can control the natural rhythms of the world. Yes. And, and that hasn't turned out very well. And so Wes says, you know, we're stuck. We can't give up on knowledge. We can't suddenly pretend we can go back to being gatherers and hunters, you know, with nearly 8 billion people on the planet. That isn't going to turn out very well. And so Wes says, we have to go back to the garden 
and confront the angel with the flaming sword, which is the, the, what God put in front of the tree of knowledge so that, yeah. uh, or the tree of, of life so that human beings wouldn't muck it up. And he says, we have to make a bargain with the angel with the flaming sword. He says, we have to ask them to sheath the sword uh, as long as we promise not to let human knowledge seeking persuade us that we are as gods. And of course, part of the, the techno-optimism is really an arrogance that says we can, we humans can run the planet as effectively as the natural processes that evolved over millions and billions of years of evolution. The right. arrogance of the human species really seems to know no bounds. And so that story is useful. It says, how do we get back to, to the tree of life while recognizing that you know, we bit the apple and we can't suddenly forget the knowledge we have acquired over the last you know, 10, 12,000 years. Yeah, I interpret that also as that violating the, the grace limits of, yeah. of primary reality of the living world. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Bob, I know we only have a few minutes. You've got another uh, commitment. Uh, anything you'd like to say about sort of how for you coming to terms with, you know, the cascading problems of overshoot and resource depletion and climate, et cetera. How uh, have you experienced, the, you know, what Paul Chaferka talks about as, you know, finding the gift on the other side of the stages of grief, on the other side of, I know you've had mentoring very early on, so you perhaps didn't even experience any of that. But um, what, what has opened up for you positively in terms of looking at a future that may or may not even include humans? And if it does include humans, it's likely to be just pocket remnants. Uh, well, I, I think what you know, lifts me up is the fact that in the end, I'm human and I would like to keep living and I would like to make a contribution to the world and I would like to be a decent person. <laughs> All mm -hmm. of the motivations that make getting up in the morning possible. Uh, and when you let go of that, I, I guess I don't know what it means to be human. Uh, I think what has sustained me is that I've been extraordinarily lucky to meet some wonderful people. Yeah. Uh, so for instance, I've been talking about Wes Jackson. I'm currently working with Wes on two different writing projects to try to bring some of this to the public in a new way. Uh, and that's an extraordinary opportunity. Uh, in a more personal way, um, later in life, I, I entered a relationship, eventually married uh, a singer-songwriter named Eliza Gilkison, who shares these concerns, and unlike me, is amazingly creative <laughs> and brings it to the world in song. And so to be in a relationship with someone who is using her own particular creative gifts, which are extraordinary, to try to articulate this in poetry, which takes us beyond where prose can take us. I know how to write a sentence. I know how to write a paragraph. I know how to make an argument. What I'm not very good at is, is touching the human heart. And I've been fortunate for the last 14 years to be with someone who does that and who does that toward in the service of this same project of how do we help each other deal with this grief. And some of what the, the, her most recent recordings are full of songs that do that in ways that really do br still bring me to tears. Um, now, those are two extraordinary people I've been lucky enough to meet, but I can also point to lots of people who aren't artists or aren't writers or aren't big thinkers uh, with whom I still have the same kind of relationship and we, we keep each other afloat basically. And so yes. 
uh, I think instead of repressing the sense of, uh, or the desire to talk about this because you're afraid people will think you're crazy, I think giving yourself permission to talk to other people about this is the, the only way forward. And in my experience, when I do that, it's not always successful. Some people look at me and think I'm crazy and that's fine. But uh, every now and then you meet a like-minded soul. And as you pointed out in the introduction, every year there are gonna be more of those like-minded souls. And so the degree we have, to the degree we have the courage to say aloud what we think privately, I think we do ourselves and the world a favor. For more information about this project, go to postdoom.com.